Don't you wish you could just bundle all that energy up and sell it? Or hang on to it? Well, welcome, welcome. We're, uh, as I said earlier, we're going through our series of Nehemiah, a series called Restoration. And we're in chapter 4, so if you open your Bibles, we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 14 today. Did you know that there is a, a plague that's going through the world? It's a worldwide plague. It's a huge plague. I know, what a way to start off a sermon, huh? Did you know that there's a, a horrible plague in the world? But there is. It's not the bird flu. It's not, not cancer. Not, not even the common cold. It's a plague. It's a, the, this outbreak is just as deadly as all of those. It's the most deadliest and dreaded disease known to man. The plague is called the disease of discouragement. It's a, the seriousness of this, it's, it's epidemic because it's universal. Nobody's immune to it. There is no shot you can get. There's no surgery you can have to, to fix it. It's universal and everybody can get it. Every one of you have known discouragement at some time in your life, some, some moment of your life where you just had it very difficult and you just felt that hopelessness, that, that time where, where you just felt like giving up. It's an epidemic because it's reoccurring. Just because you, you get through it once doesn't mean you can't get it again. It can happen again, and it can happen again after that. You can be discouraged over and over and over again. It's highly contagious. Hang out with somebody that's, very, that's going through it, and next thing you know, you'll start getting discouraged, and you'll start thinking those things. It spreads like wildfire. People can become disheartened, disheartened just because you're discouraged or the person you're around. That discouragement starts getting into you. Next thing you know, you get that, what I call stinking thinking. You just get it and you start getting discouraged and you sit broken and you're, you're just like, oh, what's going to go on? See, there's millions of people around our country every day going to bed at night hopeless and, and brokenhearted. You know, we have people that are going to bed because, every night because they're, they're, they have depression. Now, there's two kinds of depression. There's a physical depression where dopamine and serotonin levels in your body are, are off, and so it creates this sadness that's hard. And so that's what medication is great for, things like that. But there's also a, another kind of depression where it's being depressed. You lose a loved one, and you go through a hard time with you losing that loved one, and you get depressed. Finances. Um, uh, finances can cause depression. Maybe you're, maybe you're so stressed out as a parent and, and, and just, you know, like this is my household here. It's crazy all the time. Daryl came over for a moment and we, as we were leaving, he, we were joking about how nutty it gets. My household, I have five boys and, and they're ranging from, as you probably saw over here, you know, four years old to 14. And it gets a little, and it gets stressful. Any of you that have had teenage parent, or teenagers in your life, have had, you can relate, can't you? You know what I'm talking about, that stress from being a parent, trying to manage all these things. And it can, and it can really put a toll on you. It can really make you discouraged. Like, is this ever going to end? Or as a parent, you worry about your kids. Are they going to grow up to be godly men and women? Are they going to grow up to be honorable, hardworking, 
those values, those traits that you value, that, that are important to you. And so it discourages you. You, you, you see things, and it, and it can bring some, some worry and some stress into your life. Or what about financial burdens? You can be discouraged because every time you turn around, you're getting phone calls, and you're desperate, and you're, you're in the need for help. You're in a need for something, a bailout. We don't have, uh, we don't have access to that millions of dollars in a bailout. So we, we have to deal with it, what's in front of us, and, and we stress and worry and get those phone calls every day of, of creditors. And some of you, maybe you have some health concerns, and, and as a, as, you, know, when you go to the hospital and you see something like this happens, where, where somebody, you know, you know, not only does he have a gun, but look at that needle. Anybody know who that is? Yes, that would be our, our great Matt Moore here. He is a star today. Yeah, you know what? I bet you would. Scare him right into health, right? <laughs> you see that, I'm sure he would have just jumped up and... But maybe health concerns. Maybe, maybe you see a guy with a needle like that, and that discourages you. And you're saying, I'm done. I'm going to change the way I look at things, because it could be worse. Today's message is about discouragement and how we can overcome that. Discouragement is something that we all face. And discouragement can result from different scenarios. And we could be disheartened in, in different areas of our lives. And different things can happen that can throw us into this. And all of us can relate to this. This is something every single person here can relate to a moment in your life or moments in your life where you felt disheartened, just discouraged. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to go through a couple key things to help you overcome that. If you keep focusing on those uh, negative thoughts, it'll keep you there. But we need to change that. One, uh, One subtle form of spiritual discouragement is the idea that we can't please God. One idea is that that we can't please God in any way. See, this is a trap that a lot of Christians fall into. It's a trap that a lot of them are ensnared by that we can't please God. If we were to write down everything that we thought we needed to do to please God, the list would be long. How many of you, raise your hands if you think it would be more than one page? More than three pages? Maybe, maybe five? Okay, good. I, th- I say no pages. But if we were to write them down, we would probably fill up the, a page probably front to back. Maybe it's, I need to pray more. I need to tithe more. I need to fill in the blank. Whatever it is you think. I need to teach more. I need to do more ministry work. I need to do something to please God, and that's a trap. What pleases God is our obedience and our heartfelt love for Him. Our obedience and heartfelt love for Him. Another source of discouragement is unanswered prayers. When when we present a request to the Lord, He does not necessarily answer it in the manner that we think should answer and that, and, or maybe not even the right timing. So we get discouraged from that. We think, oh, you know what? God didn't answer my prayers. And we, or He didn't answer in the way we like, so it discourages us. 
You know, maybe, maybe some of those slides we looked at, you know, maybe God didn't heal you in a, a certain way. God, heal me today, and it doesn't happen, and you get discouraged. Or maybe financial crisis, and you, and you pray for, to get out of this financial crisis, and you pray, and it doesn't happen right away. And that could be discouraging to people. When that's the case, we often get discouraged and discouragement creeps in and depression creeps in and, and whether one form or another, whatever happens, we end up giving up on prayer. We think prayer doesn't work and we stop praying. But see, there's, with all this talk about you know, discouragement, there are people out there that overcome this. There are people that, that realize that there's something we can do and, and there's things we can do to overcome this when we're faced with these obstacles, with these challenges we face. I'll give you an example. Here's, here's one guy who beat all odds. Listen to, listen to the story. At the age of seven, he had to go to work to help his family. At nine, his mother died. At 22, he lost his job as a clerk, as a store clerk. At 23, he went into debt and became a partner in a, in a small store. At 24, his partner died, leaving him with the huge debt. At 35, he had been defeated twice when running for a seat in Congress. 37, he won the election. But two years later, when he was 39, he was defeated. He lost re-election. At 41, his four-year-old child died. At 42, he was rejected for a land officer position. At 45, he ran for the Senate and lost. At 47... He was defeated for the nomination for vice president. Do you think, I mean, this guy's had it pretty rough. At 49, he ran for Senate again and lost. At 51, he was elected president of the United States. Anybody know who that is? Abe Lincoln. That's right. His name goes on in the history books. He's one of the great presidents of all time. Do you think he understood what discouragement was? Do you think he understood what it meant to be challenged, but yet he overcame and became one of the great presidents we have? So my hope today is that when, not if, but when we're faced with discouragement, you will have some tools, some things that you can, right when it happens, you will have some tools to go to, to be able to help you get through this discouragement. These tools to fight it. So open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll be reading 1 through 14. It'll also be up on the screen for you to follow along if you'd like. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? When, then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up on what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return, to, return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight. 
because they have provoked the builders. So we rebuild the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arab Ammonites and Ashdites heard that the repair of, to the wall of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer falls since there is no, so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And the enemy said, they won't know or see anything until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews have lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons, your daughters, and your wives and homes. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up your word and we seek to understand what Nehemiah is going through and these people are going through, help us learn from it, help us apply it in our lives. We ask the Holy Spirit to be here today to, uh, to teach us what you would have us learn. Father God, thank you so much for Nehemiah and his, and his leadership and so we can read this years later and learn from him. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we turn through, as we go through Nehemiah chapter 4, we see that they are faced with some obstacles. They're faced with some things. And as you, you probably heard, there was some discouragement in there. They're worried. They were fearful. This morning, we're going to focus on both the causes and the cures of discouragement. So let's begin with the causes. Ex- the first is external causes. And there's actually two kinds of external causes. One is problems that arise from the outside, the outside world that come in. And then the other is internal internal problems, internal stressors. So let's look at the external first. The wall, the wall workers were initially excited. Remember if we, a week or two ago, we talked about how excited they were and they dedicated the doors and, and they're, uh, this was in chapter 3 and they were excited to build and they were cheering on and Nehemiah really motivated them and they inspired them and they were praising God and they were working really hard. And as we saw through chapter 3, they worked uh, in, in sections, uh, 44 different sections and they just were joyous. They began the work with great anticipation and joy. And it even said in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, they even did it with all their heart. So they were just putting the effort out. They were, they were really trying hard. Things were going well. People were excited. The wall was going up. But then something happened. Something changed. Getting the work started on the wall was a major achievement, but keeping the workers working was different was much tougher assignment. Where God is at work, the enemy will play and try to stop us and try to stop you. So anytime you're working toward God or you're doing things for God and you're walking the right path, expect some things to happen. Expect it to be challenging. I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, you know what? Anybody that thinks the Christian life is easy has got the wrong idea of it. 
Because the Christian life, once we start walking in the ways of God and we start following Him, opposition is going to happen. Rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was certainly no exception to this. When the people take priorities, or kingdom priorities serious, they can expect some challenges to come in place. Now, the enemy used two different things. The, uh, two external forces. The first one was ridicule. He used ridicule to try to get them to stop working, to kind of like, get that motivation out of there. You remember these people did it all with all their heart and, and they're just excited to build the wall and they wanted to glorify God in this and rebuild the temple and now they're, they've got these other guys. Sam Ballot and his goons are, are ridiculing them. Look at uh, verse 1 and 2. When Sam Ballot heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly mad. He was furious. He ridiculed the Jews. He mocked them. This is the third time in the book we come across Sam Ballad and Tobiah and the Arab, uh, Geshem. And, we, we, and, and they're the Nehemiah's stiffest opposition. They're the guys that are really coming up against. I mean, this isn't just little, little you know, negative talking, little trash talking kind of thing. These guys are just coming at them. They're going after Nehemiah and the workers. Every time we read about them, they, they're standing against the work of God, rejecting, ridiculing everything Nehemiah and the workers are doing. Now, this word ridicule, when you, when you look a little bit further into the original language, you'll find that it's actually considered language of the devil. That's how bad it is. Language of the devil. I mean, that's pretty harsh. That's, that's really bad. Some people can, can stand bravely in the face of danger. They go out, they can serve their country, serve their communities, be put in danger. But when they get ridiculed, it's a whole other story. They can't handle that. They can handle, they can't handle being laughed at or ridiculed or mocked. See, the enemy, and many times, insults the servants of God. When you start working and, and somebody calls you a Bible thumper because you, you love the Word of God and you're, you have it in your hand all the time and you're reading it on your lunchtime and they kind of tease you and make fun of you because you're a Bible thumper, say thank you. Because it's going to happen. They'll insult Servants of God. Goliath ridiculed David. Soldiers mocked Jesus. Sam Ballot and his knuckleheads, his goons, are sitting there ridiculing the workers, ridiculing Nehemiah. Look in uh, chapter 2, verse 19. They said, they mocked and ridiculed us. See, here in verse, verse 2, Sam Ballot is making a speech before the nobles of Samaria, before the leaders and the, the officers of Samaria. And he's, and he's intensifying the ridicule. He's really saying some nasty things and he even called the workers feeble and begin with his sarcasm. And then in verse 3, Tobiah turns and he tries to crack some sarcastic joke and he turns around and says, and they are building, and what they are building, even a fox climbed up on it. He would break down the stones. He would crumble the wall. A little fox. That's how, that's how his sarcastic they're getting. It's like, ah, they're not doing nothing. They're not going to succeed. Look at those feeble people. Even a fox, a little fox comes up there. It'll crumble. Now, archaeologists have dug up part of this wall. Did you know that it's like nine feet wide in certain sections? Yeah. So that's a little fox crumbling it. That's really sarcastic. 
Tobiah hoped that his sarcasm would make the builders discouraged and get them to quit. Now, the second cause of their external discouragement was oppression, and we see that in verses 7 and 8. The enemies have moved from being bothered by the Jews to being angry. Now they're furious. Now they're angry at what they're doing. They're building this wall, and they're, they're furious at them. And they all plotted together to fight against Jerusalem. Now they're plotting. They're not just throwing out words. Now they're wanting to fight. And they even talked about killing them. They're plotting against them at this point. They want to fight, stir up trouble. And they figured, you know, if we kill some of them, maybe they'll stop working. Maybe they'll get the point. Maybe we'll use force now. Instead of words, we're going to use our, our swords and, and, and kill these people. The workers were surrounded and lived in constant fear of being ambushed. This, the reference in verse 7 are to four points of the compass. Sambalat and Samaritans are in the north. Ashdod is to the west. Tobiah and the Ammonites were to the east. And Geshem and the Arabs were to the south. So all the way around, they're being threatened physically by this group. See, if ridicule and sarcasm doesn't work, sometimes people will use intimidation and fear to, get, to keep you down. They will intimidate you to try to keep you from moving forward. Friends, whenever you attempt to get something done from God, you can expect that something like this is going to happen. You're going to face ridicule and opposition. Jesus did it. The prophets did it. Paul did it. Twelve apostles did it. They were all ridiculed and oppressed. You will be faced with these things. See, that's, that's one thing we have to recognize. But you know what? You can expect it, but it doesn't mean you stop working. It doesn't mean you, they didn't give up. They didn't stop working on the wall. They continued. Now we move on to internal causes. So those are the external causes. Those are things that other people were doing to you or to them. So external forces bring us and try to keep us down from doing God's work. Sometimes pressures from the outside will cause problems on the inside. Oppression outside the ranks can lead to depression on the inside. Sometimes when we're ridiculed or, or, or people are trying to keep us from doing God's work and we're made fun of because we carry a Bible. I'll tell you a quick story, a little side story. I was working as an adult detox center supervisor. So I, had a, I was a supervisor for about 15 staff members. And what we did was as people were um, on, coming off of drugs and alcohol, we would take them in and we would de- detox. It was emergency detox. And so what, I remember when uh, one of my coworkers found out that I was a Christian. So, and I got along with her and she actually was, I was her supervisor. Um, she came up to me and uh, oh, she heard that I was a Christian. She looks at me and she had this little smirk and she goes, you're a Christian? I said, yeah. I said, as a matter of fact, I'm a pastor. And she's like, and she, you could see this little sarcastic smirk. And I'm like, go ahead. I know she's going to say something. She goes, yay, Jesus, with complete contempt. And I just smiled. Keep in mind, I could have written her up and got her fired. But I didn't. I just smiled. Said, yeah, that's right. See, it's going to happen when people find out that you're a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to get ridicule and opposition. You're going to get it. And sometimes when that happens on the outside, what happens on the in- it starts affecting the inside. It wasn't the voice of the enemy that was most menacing. It was the voice of God's own people. And just like today, it's so easy to internalize the words of the enemies 
and feel like giving up. The first thing that happens in many cases is that we get frustrated. That's the internal response. We get frustrated. We don't know what to say. Verse 10 continues by saying that there is so much rubble, they cannot rebuild the wall. They became discouraged because they were aggravated at the situation. And now they're hearing that external voice come in, and next thing you know, they're internalizing it. They're saying, yeah, maybe we can't. Maybe we can't do that. I'm sure they've encountered broken stones and all this broken rubble, and they probably looked at that, and they started thinking, well, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Maybe we can't do this. This is a lot of work. Maybe we can't accomplish this. Junk was everywhere, and it was frustrating. Just as, and they lost sight of their goal. So, too, we can lose sight of our goals. When God calls us to do something, sometimes we can lose sight of that because we look at the surface, and we see the rubble, and we see the garbage in our lives, and we say, you know what? I can't do that. Maybe they're right. Maybe all the junk that's in my life now, the, maybe the sin that I've done, or maybe the, the long laundry list of things that I'm trying to do to please God, and I can't. Uh, you know, maybe they're right. I'm not good enough. I don't pray enough to serve. I'm not, I don't pray enough to be a good Christian. And you keep trying to prove yourself because of all that junk. And sadly, we hear it from the external. We hear about the great godly men, and we read the books on it, and we hear about it, and we say, man, I want to be just like that, but I don't measure up like him. I'm not like that person. And we compare ourselves. And, and when we compare ourselves, we start getting that, that stinking thinking. We start thinking, no, oh, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I shouldn't be a preacher. Maybe I shouldn't be a teacher. Maybe I shouldn't be a deacon. Maybe I shouldn't do these things. And we start internalizing it. Hebrews 12.1 challenges us to get rid of everything that causes us frustration in our pursuit for godliness. It reads this. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. I don't know what rubble is in your life. I don't. I don't know each and every one of your your struggles that you go to. Maybe it's too much TV. Maybe it's a particular sin in your life. Maybe you're holding on to something. Maybe you're in an unhealthy relationship. I don't know. But as the writer of Hebrews says... Throw it off. Don't let it trip you up. Get rid of it. Toss it. Another cause of discouragement is fear. The enemy of the Lord's work has struck fear in the hearts of the workers. They struck fear in the hearts of of the people who are trying to do God's work. They're all excited, and now they're fearful. And that's a distraction. Remember they said in verse 10, we cannot build the wall. We can't build the wall. They're already second-guessing themselves. They've been working for a little while, and now they're listening to them, and because of the fear and this intimidation that's going on, they're saying, you know what? Maybe we can't. Maybe we can't finish what God has called us to do. In verse 12, the people who lived near the troublemakers were afraid the quickest. It says, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So they're afraid everywhere they turn. They're just getting that fear and intimidation. They're always looking over their shoulder. See, the, those most affected by fear are those who live with and surround themselves near pessimistic people. 
If you want to limit your thoughts and your fears, your, your negative thoughts and your fears, then it's best not to hang out with negative people. People that are critical. People that are criticizing everything. Criticizing what God's doing. Criticizing your, you know, you come along and you say, hey, you know what, I really want to serve in the youth ministry or something. And, and they say, nah, you know what, you're too old. You can't do that. Or maybe you want to you do the youth ministry and they say, no, you know what, I remember a few years ago when you struggled with that sin, whatever sin it was. Now you're not, you're not, you know, you're not mature enough as a Christian to do that. So when you hang out with those people, you're going to start thinking like them. Remember that old phrase, birds of the same feather flock together? Okay, when you hang out with those people that are pessimistic and negative, you're going to be just like them. Get rid of them. Stay away from them. Keep an arm's distance. Be godly. Be a Christian. Be kind. But you don't have to hang out with it. Just, just be encouraging. But you'll know when you start thinking like them, you need to get away. There's an old saying, if, you, if you're going to soar like the eagles, you can't run with, like the turkeys. If you're going to soar like the eagles, you can't run with the turkeys. Stay away from them. In the book, Scared to Life, Douglas Rumford states a study that shows why we shouldn't fear or we shouldn't let fear rule our lives. Some of the numbers are up on the screen. 60% of our fears are totally unfounded. Did you know 60% of your fears right now, you listed them out, 60% of them roughly are not even valid. They're unfounded. 20% are already behind us. 10% are so petty they don't even make a difference. 5% 5% are real, real fears, but, they don't, but we can't do anything about them. 5% are real, but we can't do anything about them. We're going to face intimidation. We're going to face fears. We're going to face obstacles. And when it starts to internalize it, we need to set it aside and stay away from it. So now we take, we talked about the two, the internal, external causes. Now let's move to the cure. Now this is the good stuff. This is the great stuff. This is the the solutions. Okay, this is the cure for discouragement. Now we know some causes and ridicule and oppression that can lead to frustration and fear. There's definitely a cure for this. The first cure is to request God's help. Sounds pretty simple. Request God's help. Nehemiah requested God's help. Chapter 1, in Jerusalem, he prayed for four months. When he first, in chapter 1, one of our first messages, he prayed for four months about his concern for Jerusalem. He sought God's help. Chapter 2, right before he's about to meet up with the king, and the king calls them or, or notices that he's sad, and so he says, okay, what is going on with you? He turns around, and he's about to answer the king. What's he do? He shoots up a prayer. He says, Lord, help me. I'm about to... See this king. And if, if you remember, there's a possibility of death for him being sad in the presence of the king. So he was scared. He was a little nervous there. So he shot up right to the God of creation and asked for help. In chapter 4, he prays two different times. He looked up before launching out. He prayed before proceeding. That was the first thing he did. Take a look at the first prayer in verses 4 and 5. It says, hear us, O Lord, we, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. 
Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now that's quite a prayer. He wasn't just, he wasn't praying for his, uh, his enemies to become believers. He, he was asking God to actually judge them. That was a harsh prayer. He's like, you know what? These guys have evil in their hearts and they're coming after us. They're intimidated. They're stop, trying to stop God's work. Lord, judge them. He knew that the enemies were fighting against God and he asked God to deal with them. He didn't give lectures to the workers. He didn't organize raiding parties against them or create propaganda campaigns to put a different spin on it. Nothing. He went straight to God and said, God, take care of them. Handle this. Don't let them get away with it. Here's the principle we can learn from Nehemiah. When people talk against you, when people are against you, like that young lady that when I was at the detox center, when they talk against Jesus, God, our Christian faith, don't talk back. Just smile. And say thank you. It's like coals on their head. Somebody's ridiculing you, and, you, and they say, oh, man, you need, to, you need to lose weight. Yeah, I do. Thank you. Smile. You know what they're going to do? I just disarmed them. I just totally took away their power. They have no power over me. You know who has power over me? Jesus Christ. That's who I serve, not man. When they talk against you, don't talk back. Just smile and say thank you. Second cure is to reorganize your priorities. To, the first one was seek God's help. The second is reorganize your priorities. Now in verse 13, Nehemiah says, Therefore I stationed some people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed areas or exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So Nehemiah already organized the people in chapter 3. Remember, if you remember, they had 44 separate groups, and he had everybody was working in front of their house or in their house and business. They would take all the business owners and the homeowners right around there and say, okay, this section is yours. You work on this. But now, as they finish the, the, their task and they're moving on and the wall is getting, getting further along and they're having this attack, now he had to shift his priorities. He had to change his strategy a little bit. A new situation had come and it required a change in the organization. If the enemies were going to attack, they'd most likely go to the lowest points. They most likely would go to the areas that, that the wall is still not quite done. And so that's, and they're going to look at the weakest areas. So Nehemiah put guards in the vulnerable areas. This served two purposes. It discouraged the, army, or the enemy and encouraged the people to deal with their fears. They were going to face this obstacle. They had to reorganize some things, but they weren't just going to run away and stop working on the wall. No, they're going to face it, and they're going to deal with this fear. When we're encouraged or discouraged, one of the things that we can do is reorganize our priorities. So take a look at your life. You can adopt a change in approach instead of becoming discouraged and quitting. If you have a problem in your marriage, maybe what you're doing it's not working. Maybe that's why there's a problem there. Maybe you need to reorganize your priorities. 
Instead of going out with your buddies on a Friday night, maybe you should take your wife on a date. That would be a reorganizing of your priorities. Or maybe going out with the ladies. Your, 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 uh, you know, you ladies that go out with your girlfriends. Maybe instead of doing all that, maybe you should take, take your husband out on a date. Bowling or something. Or go fishing or hunting with him. Whatever it is. Do something with him. But when we're faced with these things, change your priorities. When you have a problem with your job, don't get give up and quit. So many people are quitting jobs because times get tough. They get a bad boss and they quit because it's difficult. Because you don't, you know, they don't understand them. Or they go through a hardship at work and they just quit. That's easier. Change your priorities. If you have a problem with your walk with God, maybe there's something you need to change. Maybe if you don't have that, that love and that, or that peace that, you, that Scripture talks about clearly, and you read guys like Paul and the apostles, and you read Nehemiah and their faith, and you think, man, and you again compare yourself, and you think, I'm horrible compared to these guys. And you compare yourself, and you, need, and you know that you need to do something with your walk with God. You know there's something wrong. Maybe you need to change your priorities. Don't stop following Jesus. Don't stop coming to church. Reorganize your schedule so you can be with him more. Reorganize your schedule and get up a little bit earlier or stay a little later somewhere. Or on your lunch break, open your Bible instead of playing on your phone, checking Facebook. Maybe you need to change your priorities in order to grow in your relationship with God. Plug into a small group or Bible study. We have Bible studies on Wednesday night. We have Bible studies on, uh, we have a prayer group on Tuesday mornings. We have a Bible studies, multiple Bible studies here on Sunday, mo- or Sunday morning. And believe me, if there's a need for another Bible study, we'll make one. We'll figure that out. But don't quit. Do something about it. Do something to change the way you're handling situations so you can move forward and resolve that issue. In verse 16, the worker is reorganized again by dividing responsibilities. Half worked, and the other half kept watch. Those who worked used one hand pushing a wheelbarrow, and the other with a sword. And they worked together as a team. Ministry and Christian life is a team sport. There is no Lone Ranger Christians. Those that say there are, are fooling themselves. If you want to defeat discouragement, you have to request God's help. You have to reorganize your priorities. And the last thing is you have to remember who God is. You have to remember who God is. After looking everything over and sensing the discouragement within his team, Nehemiah rallied the troops in verse 14. In verse 14, he turns around. At the end of the section we read, he says this, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I saw one translation say awe-inspiring. I actually like that a little bit better. God is awe-inspiring. Nehemiah knew, even in the face of opposition, that the success of the wall was completely dependent on God, who inspired it from the beginning. 
God started this right in the beginning when Nehemiah got on his knees for four months and prayed, and then he went to the king, and he had boldly asked for all this stuff, the letters and protection and wood and uh, a leave of absence, and, he, and not only did he do that, but he made him governor of the area and provided him with everything he needs. God started this. And what did Nehemiah do? He turned it right back and said, God is going to take care of this. This is from God, not us. The people were right. They could not rebuild the wall on their own. They needed to remember God and what He'd promised. I don't know about you, but it's easy to stop focusing on God. It's real easy to take one step away. It's real easy to be doing great and then get so wrapped up in life that you you slowly start moving away from God. It's easy to stop focusing on God when things are tough. I don't know about you, but when things get tough, I, I want to fix it. I want to I solve it. If there's a marriage problem, I want to fix it. But all right, we're going to do these steps and we're going to have a happy marriage. You know, we want to fix it. I know a lot of guys out there are like that. They want to fix it. And we forget that we can't fix these things without God. You must remember that He is great and awesome. God is more than able to deal with your discouragement. And you've got to remember who he is. Go right back to the basics of looking at him. So when you're down and you turn your attitude from discouragement to the one who can do something about it, who can fix it, who can encourage you, who can comfort you, can give you direction, guide you. God is faithful to you in the past, and he will be faithful to you in the future. He is faithful to you today. He's promised to be faithful because of who He is. Don't ever forget that. Remember the Lord. Remember His promises. Remember His goodness. Remember His power. Remember that He's awe-inspiring. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much for this time as we see the the people, the workers that Nehemiah was working with, see them, them discouraged because of the opposition, Lord. Because of these people that are trying to, trying to stop the work. It's trying to stop your work, Lord. And we see this and, and we're so thankful for Nehemiah's example of going straight to you and reorganizing his priorities and, and praying and, and saying, okay, Lord, this is, I can't do this without you. This is all about you. And telling the people to remember God. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for his, his love and or his example and your love and your faithfulness to us. Father God, we face difficulties every day. We face things that challenge us and get us discouraged. We're in a very negative world. The Christian life and the well, Christians in general are under assault. They have been since the beginning of time, but even in our country, we have cha- there's a changing in the culture and people are becoming very hostile against us. And it's easy, Lord, to walk away for people. It's easy to, to say, you know what, this is too tough. But Lord, I pray that each and every one of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, that we stay bold and strong before you and before other people. I pray that we don't give in to fear and discouragement, but we rally against you and rally against the evils of this world. And we stay 
firm in the Scriptures and we stay firm in Your love. Father God, thank You so much for giving us an opportunity to know You. And we thank You for Your blessings. And we thank You for being here today. In Jesus' name, amen.